Folks, have you checked out the Irish History Podcast shop recently? Right now, I have a sale of 30% off everything when you use the code SALE30. So go to irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash shop and get 30% off everything when you use the discount code SALE30. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive in June. Olive in June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hello and welcome to the Irish History Podcast. My name is Finn Dewar and this is Paradise Lost, Partisans, Part 8. Partisans, Irish Stories from the Spanish Civil War was created by myself and Stuart Redden. Now this podcast, Paradise Lost, looks at aspects of that war that are sometimes overlooked So we start out with the story of the Irish woman Hannah Ormsby who travelled to Spain during the war to work as a nurse, often under attack in the most extreme conditions. The episode also looks at how internal conflicts on the anti-fascist side turned a war that started out as very idealistic for some into a living nightmare. In this packed episode we also progress the story of the wider war which brings us to the famous Battle of Terwell which has often been compared to Stalingrad by historians. Now research for the episode was by Stuart Redden and narrations were by Aidan Crow and Wern Hogan. While we still have a few more episodes to go in Partisans I'd like to thank all of you who've signed up on Patreon to support the research and the work involved in making these episodes. Now these are trying times for everyone and research is definitely more difficult and costly since libraries and archives are closed due to COVID-19 but your support is making a huge difference. Now the next major project is on the War of Independence and this is only possible because of your support so thanks very much. If you would like to join the show patrons and get lots of rewards including bonus shows and early access to the podcast just go to patreon.com forward slash irish podcast. That's patreon.com forward slash Irish podcast. You can also support my work through the online shop at irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash shop. You'll find a range of great items there from badges of your favourite historical figures through to flags associated with the Spanish Civil War. You can check all that out at irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash shop. Finally, don't forget to subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts. It helps both of us so you won't miss the next episode of the show and the more people subscribe it really helps me 
grow the audience and increase the visibility of the podcast. Now, that's the business end of the show done. Let's get stuck into the history. The summer of 1937 was a worrying time for anti-fascists everywhere. Over the previous year, Spain had become a symbol of resistance the world over to the looming threat that fascism posed. But the war was not going well. The Irish anti-fascist Frank Ryan, who had been invalided out of the conflict after being wounded at the Battle of Harama, wrote an article for an Irish Republican newspaper on Fublocht, giving voice to the shock and horror many felt after the bombing of the Basque town of Guernica. Guernica, in the Basque country, was recently attacked by a mass formation of German bombing and fighting planes manned by Germans. The defenceless people were butchered in a way that makes one ill to read. Women and children were followed out into the fields where they ran from the horror and carnage within by swooping planes and riddled to death by machine gun fire. Nothing in any way has equaled this inhumane massacre. While he may not have directly said it, the Spanish Civil War, which he and many others had pinned so much hope on, was clearly not going well. The excitement of the early days when anything seemed possible was evaporating fast as the conflict settled into a barbarous and what appeared to be an increasingly unwinnable war. Indeed, even for the most fervent of anti-fascists, the slogan of the previous winter that Madrid would become a graveyard of fascism seemed somewhat hollow by the summer of 1937. After Guernica, Spain, if anything, was becoming the graveyard of humanity. However, even in those difficult days of fading hope, Irish people continued to travel to Spain to support the anti-fascist cause. Among them was the Sligo woman, Hannah Ormsby, who made the fateful decision to travel to Spain in the summer of 1937. Hannah had been born in 1901 outside the village of Dromora West in Sligo. While little is known about her early years, she, like many of her generation, emigrated. In Hannah's case, she followed in the footsteps of her older siblings to pursue a career in nursing in the United Kingdom. So around 1920, she moved to Glasgow in Scotland, where she began training at the Maudsley Hospital. Where Hannah developed her political ideals, or what exactly they were, is unclear. However, Glasgow in the 1920s and 1930s was often called Red Clydeside, a reference to the radical politics in the city, and this may well have influenced Hannah's outlook on the world. One way or another, by 1937, she took the decision to travel to Spain. She was not travelling to fight, however. Instead, she was among a minority who were arguably the most important volunteers. That was, trained medics. At the outset of the Spanish Civil War, anti-fascists across Europe had quickly realised that medics, like Hannah, were going to be equally as important as soldiers. Without their help, even minor injuries could lead to fatal infections. Within less than two weeks of the outbreak of the conflict, a group called the Relief Committee for the Victims of Fascism, a British organisation that had helped refugees fleeing Nazi persecution, had already taken steps to mobilise health workers in the fight against fascism in Spain. They established the Spanish Medical Aid Movement, which was tasked with raising money to send qualified doctors and nurses to Spain. From its inception, this unit had a strong Irish involvement. One of its leading members was Hyacinth Morgan, the medical advisor to the British Trade Union Congress, who had been born to Irish parents. Another prominent member included a somewhat elusive Irish man known only as Dr Martin. However, while the medical aid movement could arrange the logistics of getting to Spain for the likes of Hannah Ormsby, volunteering was far from enticing. 
By and large, the conditions were appalling. The medics received no pay. They would be provided with bed, board and inoculations against typhoid, but not much else. In return, they would be expected to work in extremely gruelling and dangerous conditions, in some cases right behind the front lines, in what was often a thankless role. The iconic image of the Spanish Civil War in the 1930s was a militiaman or woman wielding a gun, not a nurse or doctor, cleaning a wound. Hannah Ormsby decided to travel to Spain in the summer of 1937, which was in many ways the hardest time to go. After the bombing of Guernica, it was clear that her status as a medic offered no protection. She would be considered a quote-unquote red, which in the eyes of Franco's army made her a legitimate target. Furthermore, the idealism and sense of anti-fascist unity that had dominated the early months of the war had long vanished. Indeed, on arriving in Spain, Hannah found herself in a deeply unsettling situation on every level imaginable. The working conditions were even worse than anything she could have envisaged. Electricity and running water were often luxuries in field hospitals. Indeed, in one instance, when electricity failed, surgeons had to push ahead and remove a shattered kidney as orderlies held flashlights to illuminate a makeshift theatre. The food they were given was repulsive, described by one nurse as hard meat, bad olive oil, chlorinated water and garlic. Hannah would be expected to work 14-hour days, dealing with injuries that were often fatal. Much of her work would be consoling the dying in their final hours. For some of the medical staff, it seemed pointless to patch up soldiers so they could go back out and fight again. Una Wilson, who had been a nurse at the Battle of Arama, gave some sense of how nurses like Hannah must have felt. And so it goes on, day after day, this awful slaughter we heal their wounds and back they go to the front to be shot to bits. How I hate war, hate it like hell. I feel tonight I could never smile again. An American nurse attached to the Lincoln Battalion gave voice to some of the difficult situations they faced when injured soldiers were actually people they knew. She remembered Cutting through the clothing of boys I had danced with on the way to Spain. Hannah, like all nurses, would also be expected to give up her own bed for the wounded soldiers and sleep on bloodied stretchers or mattresses wherever they could find space. These conditions were all compounded by the fact that they were frequently targeted by enemy snipers on the front lines. Unsurprisingly, some nurses left and just did not return. Others suffered from mental breakdowns due to the strain they were placed under. Now, these conditions were all compounded by the declining morale on the anti-fascist side. In the summer of 1937, Hannah Ormsby had walked into a deadly situation far more grave than she, or most outside of Spain, realised. At the start of the war, the rhetoric around the anti-fascist side had been one of great hope. There had been much talk of working-class men and women from across the world making common cause and sacrificing everything to stand up to fascism. However, by 1937, while they were starting to lose the war against the fascists, the talk of unity had also disappeared. It was replaced by a poisonous and for some Irish people deadly political atmosphere. Indeed, in April and May 1937, what has often been called a civil war within the civil war had broken out when long-running tensions within the anti-fascist camp had erupted into a full-blown conflict. While Hannah Ormsby was not directly involved in this, we need to look at this situation because it would influence her experiences of the war and indeed pretty much all the Irish people who found themselves in Spain from 1937 onwards. For some at least, anti-fascist Spain would become a terrifying place. 
since the outbreak of the war, the anti-fascist side had been at best a very uneasy alliance. Behind the political sloganeering of unity in the face of fascism, tensions between the two main wings of the alliance, the anarchist CNT and their bitter rivals in the Spanish communist movement, had reached a breaking point by 1937. While they were both anti-fascist, the two disagreed on pretty much all other aspects of the war, from how it should be fought to what post-war Spanish society should look like. The anarchists wanted a social revolution immediately, where workers and peasants would control the land and factories, and indeed they had already put this into practice in Barcelona, rural Catalonia and the province of Aragon. Meanwhile, the communists in Spain had a very different goal. Their policy was by and large dictated by the Soviet Union. Stalin, the Soviet dictator at this point, was trying to build an alliance with England and France against the Nazis and therefore opposed any revolution in Spain that would potentially alienate the capitalist Western democracies. The communists also believed that the fascists could only be defeated if they had total control over the anti-fascist side. While it might seem like an abstract political debate, it was anything but in 1937. While Hannah Ormsby may have come to Spain to care for the wounded, she could not ignore these tensions because it was leading to extreme violence. While the anarchists in Spain far outnumbered the communists at the outset of the war, the latter successfully infiltrated the anti-fascist government, the army, the security services, even rival political organisations, and went on to wield huge influence. In April and May 1937, in an attempt to further increase their power and control, the communists began to provoke the anarchists into open conflict. This exploded into crippling violence in Barcelona in early May 1937 when communists attempted to seize key anarchist buildings in the city. This resulted in a week of violence where hundreds were killed. The communists were the ultimate victors and while the anarchists remained a powerful force, this represented a huge political defeat for them. For the Irish in Spain, there were consequences to the communists strengthening their grip over the anti-fascist side. While many delighted in the decline of anarchist influence in favour of a strongly centralised state, few fully appreciated what this meant. The Communist Party's increase in power and influence led to an increasingly authoritarian and undemocratic state in anti-fascist Spain. This saw the establishment of the SIM, an internal security agency similar to the NKVD or the KGB. The SIM often operated off what was little more than paranoid conspiracy theories. They were obsessed with the idea that there were large numbers of fascist agents working behind the lines. Reflecting Stalin's paranoia, the communists also claimed these fascists were in league with the followers of Stalin's former rival in the Soviet Union, Leon Trotsky, who was then in exile in Mexico. Sounds crazy, but that's because it was. But as we know today, conspiracy theories can gain traction, although few have been as lethal as this one was in Spain in 1937. Anyone who advocated views critical of the communists could find themselves labelled a Trotskyite or a fascist sympathiser. Now these developments divided the Irish in Spain. Frank Ryan, who had returned in the summer of 1937 for example, was increasingly close to the communists. He would label the veteran Irish Republican Socialist Jack White a Trotskyite. In this strange world of Stalinist paranoia, White's actual supposed crime was his decision to support the anarchists. While all this might seem like political bickering and name-calling, it had terrible consequences for some. The Donegal man Brian Gould Versoil was one person who fell foul of the communists. Gould Versoil was actually an Irish communist and had in fact been closer to the Soviets than most Irish people. 
He had even spent time in Moscow and acted as a spy for them in London. On the outbreak of the war, he had travelled to Spain and worked for the communists in Barcelona. However, in early 1937, he became increasingly disillusioned with the approach of the Soviet Union. Historians have speculated through his work he may have encountered evidence of the torture and execution of other left-wing anti-fascists by the communists. In any case, by 1937 he was becoming increasingly critical and predictably, but tragically, he was kidnapped in Barcelona by Soviet agents and brought to the Soviet Union. He was sent to Orenburg Gulag near modern-day Kazakhstan where he died in 1942. Now as the war entered its second year in the summer of 1937, it was almost impossible not to encounter this creeping paranoia. Even Hannah Ormsby, who had just arrived, must have come across it. Indeed, in what was an endless search for would-be spies, surgeons were on at least one occasion accused of performing unnecessary operations to hinder the war effort. While this climate was alarming and disheartening, in the late summer of 1937, Hannah Ormsby was faced with an even greater threat when she found herself thrown into the medical front lines. She was assigned to a mobile hospital, which was established behind the front line in Aragon as the anti-fascists prepared for a major offensive. In the late summer of 1937, in spite of all their internal problems, the anti-fascists were planning a major offensive against the forces of General Franco. They decided to attack the fascists in the province of Aragon, which lies between Madrid and Barcelona, in an assault along a wide front, although the primary target was the city of Zaragoza. This could be precisely what was needed. It could draw a line under what had been the difficult months since the fall of the Basque country and the divisions within the anti-fascist side. For Hannah, the task she faced was unenvious. She was one of a small unit of ambulance crews and doctors who had to turn four wooden huts with no running water or electricity into a hospital. However, they did what they could and the results were impressive. Once the fighting began, the surgeons operating from these huts performed 160 operations in 12 days. All the while, Hannah and the other medical staff remained in constant danger from enemy fire. This eyewitness account from a hospital on the Aragon front which was directly attacked gives some sense of what her work entailed. There was one brave little woman who was nursing in a tent during a horrible air raid. She quietly pushed tin soup plates on the faces of the soldiers as they lay in bed to save them from the flying shrapnel. She was wounded herself in the head and the arms as she did it. In this battle, many medical staff were killed and seriously injured. Indeed, the chief medical officer at Hannah's station, a Dr Dubois, was shot and killed by a sniper. Two other Irish medical staff, Patrick Cochran and Patrick Blake, were injured when a grenade was thrown at them. Meanwhile, on the front lines, the Irish International Brigaders were involved in some of the most bitter fighting in this campaign, which took place around a small town called Belchite. The costs of this fighting were appalling, and among the Irish who were killed was the highly popular Peter Daly and the Dubliner Charlie Reagan. As was now par for the course, however, the wider anti-fascist campaign was a disappointment and failed to reverse the worrying situation. While they did advance 10 kilometres, they lost armaments, men and material and crucially failed to capture Zaragoza. There was no doubt in late 1937 the military situation was deteriorating rapidly and worse still, while the anti-fascists were struggling, Franco's hand was about to be strengthened. As we saw in the last episode, the war in the north had ended in October of that year and this freed up large numbers of troops. Now next we need to leave the story of Hannah Ormsby and the medical staff 
and look at where the Irish in the international brigades were by this point because they too were facing very serious internal problems. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Even though the war was not going well, Irish volunteers had continued to enlist in the international brigades through 1937. Given the fact that emigration had been high through the previous decades, some, like Hannah Ormsby, came via Britain or North America. However, there were also those who came directly from Ireland. Their reasons and motivations were also a mixture of both the personal and the political. Frank Ryan, as we have seen, who had already served in Spain but had been invalided out of the war at the Battle of Arama, returned in the aftermath of Guernica. Ryan believed it was his duty to return and ensure those he had led to Spain in December 1936 returned to Ireland safely. Bob Doyle, the Dublin communist who we met in episode 3, arrived in late 1937 for a combination of reasons as well. He had applied to join the International Brigades but had initially been turned down. However, in February 1937, he had turned 21, a birthday that was soured when he discovered his friend, flatmate and mentor, Kit Conway, had been killed at the Battle of Arama that same day. He wanted vengeance and he made his own way to Spain and joined the brigades there. The mood in the international brigades, however, had unquestionably changed by the summer of 1937. The history of the brigades has often been viewed through rose-tinted glasses given the selfless sacrifice of the volunteers. However, in reality, life was increasingly difficult for them. The internal regime and culture was often very brutal. The international brigades, even though it was not always obvious, was controlled tightly by the communist parties of Europe and ultimately the Soviet Union. The leading figures in the movement, communists from across Europe, led by the French communist André Marty, played fast and loose with the lives of volunteers. Indeed, Marty himself was a living embodiment of Stalinist paranoia and oversaw the execution of hundreds of international volunteers in many cases for imagined conspiracies. A German communist said of Marty that his preference was to execute those he suspected rather than waste time with what he called petty bourgeois indecision. The Russian journalist Ilya Ehrenberg noted how he acted like a mentally sick man on occasion. This culture of indifference to the lives of individuals permeated through the brigades. As the war progressed, the brigades were thrown into battle after battle, often used as shock troops. However, the reality was they had not received standard military training, let alone training to equip them to fight in what was often the most dangerous sectors of the line. The volunteers, often idealistic socialists, were essentially forced to learn on the job, which in battle meant high casualty rates. The precise death rate is unknown, but low estimates put it at one in five. It was certainly far higher among the Irish. Furthermore, there was also no compassion or understanding for what the volunteers who had signed up to do their bit were enduring. By the summer of 1937, there was increasing cases of what we would recognise today as PTSD. 
Morale began to fall. They had been pushed to the limits of human endurance time and again. To make matters worse, for some at least, Spain was becoming a deadly nightmare from which they could not escape. It had never been made clear how long they were expected to serve for, and on their arrival, their passports had been taken for safekeeping. However, for those who wanted to leave, some found getting their passports back difficult. This contributed to increasing numbers of incidents where people refused to carry out orders, which was punished with violence and in some instances executions. It is important to point out that this was not a universal experience. The international brigades could not have functioned if it was, but it was certainly a growing cloud hanging over life as the war dragged on. Furthermore, some like Frank Ryan could dismiss whatever misgivings he might have had because he viewed the communist influence and their discipline necessary to mould an army from such a disparate group of people and many veterans of the international brigades would go on to join communist parties later in life. However, there were all too many as well who didn't and they were often left broken and disillusioned after the war and this doesn't even begin to factor in those rarely spoken of who had been executed or disappeared. For example, Brian Gould Versailles, who was kidnapped and died in the Soviet Union for a crime of what was essentially independent thought, is rarely mentioned in discussions on the experience of Irish volunteers in the Spanish Civil War. Nevertheless, in spite of all these difficulties, the international volunteers did continue to play an important military role and they were called on to fight in what would prove to be one of the most decisive battles in the entire war up to this point an encounter often compared to the Battle of Stalingrad. This was the Siege of Terwell. Taking place around Christmas 1937, it offered the best chance to the anti-fascists to reverse their fortunes. In December 1937, Franco had planned to launch yet another assault on Madrid. He had failed four times at the start of the war, but now, with the forces freed up by his victory in the north, he had hoped he could finally take the city. However, as he began to build up his forces, the anti-fascists realised what was happening and decided that they would launch a preemptive assault on the city of Terwell. Terwell, although not very important in its own right, was a vulnerable target. Its defences were weak and its location in a bulge on the fascist line left it surrounded on three sides. Franco, an obstinate, relatively unimaginative commander, would inevitably divert his forces from Madrid once it was obvious Terwell was at risk. However, no one realised that this preemptive strike would escalate into one of the major battles of the entire war. The attack began on December the 15th in terrible conditions. Spain was enduring its worst winter since the First World War and Terwell was covered in snow. Nevertheless, the assault went surprisingly well. On the first day of the battle, the anti-fascists surrounded the city and then began the bloody business of working their way house by house, street by street through the city. They were spurred on by the fact that they knew they were in a deadly race against time. They needed to finish off the defenders in Terwell before Franco could bring down reinforcements from the Madrid front. In the following weeks, it finally seemed that the hour of the anti-fascists had arrived. By Christmas Day, they had taken much of the city. The battle had been brutal. The sub-zero temperatures along with the house-to-house fighting was a foretaste of the Eastern Front in the Second World War. By January the 8th, 1938, the anti-fascists had finally routed the last defenders and took the city. However, the celebrations were short-lived because within a week, the fascists were on the verge of launching their own counter-offensive. Franco had called off his attack on Madrid and had now marshaled his forces near Terwell. Up to this point, the international brigades had been held back as the Spanish wanted a victory 
sorely won by anti-fascist Spaniards. However, as they prepared for Franco's counterattack, they now brought in the brigades. In what must have been an unnerving, depressing moment, as the international brigades moved into Terwell, the civilian population was being evacuated. The forthcoming struggle would be merciless. While Terwell itself was not strategically or symbolically very important, it was gaining relevancy purely because there had been a battle fought there. Some on the anti-fascist side advocated that they should withdraw. They had already successfully stopped the attack on Madrid and now defending Terwell was of little value. For three weeks the two armies relentlessly attacked and counterattacked. Thousands were killed and large parts of the city were reduced to rubble. Amidst this chaos the Irish casualties mounted. These included David Walsh from Ballina and County Mayo, along with Philip Boyle and Peter Glacken from Donegal, who had signed up for service in the International Brigades as emigrants in North America and Britain. In February, silence finally fell over Terwell, and the result was decisive. Franco had retaken the city. The defeat was far more significant than just losing a strategically unimportant pile of rubble. The casualties had been appalling. Of the 100,000 dead and wounded, 60,000 had been anti-fascists. The overall impact of this was devastating. Many asked why the forces had not been pulled out when it was clear they faced overwhelming numbers in Franco's counterattack. Ultimately, Terwell was a body blow for the anti-fascists. The British poet Laurie Lee, an eyewitness, summarised it well when he described the battle as one that promised to change the war but had become the seal of defeat. This was premature, but it was increasingly difficult to see how the anti-fascists could win this war. The defeat at Terwell had a strange effect on some, though. Frank Ryan, who had been actually set to leave Spain, now felt compelled to stay, writing to a friend, Pride kept me here. I couldn't pull out and be considered a rat leaving a sinking ship. However, his words, sinking ship, were appropriate. Indeed, the final stage of the Spanish Civil War was beginning, and the Irish were about to suffer some of their hardest losses. Within weeks of their appalling defeat at Terwell, the anti-fascists now faced an even greater problem. Franco, building on his victory, launched a new offensive in March 1938 along the Aragon front. The anti-fascists were increasingly, like a boxer, struggling to stand up in the face of repeated blows. Their weakened, battered and demoralised forces were unable to stop this latest assault in Aragon. Even though all the international brigaders fought as a single unit for the first time, the fascists were able to sweep them aside, breaking through the front, which had been relatively stable for the entire war. However, this was only the beginning. The fascists were clearly driving hard for the Mediterranean coast, and if they could reach it, they would divide the anti-fascist zone in two. Barcelona would be cut off from Madrid, while the port of Valencia would be in danger of falling as well. Desperate to halt the advance, Frank Ryan, who had spent most of his time since returning to Spain behind the front line, now joined his old comrades, including the young Dublin communist Bob Doyle. Doyle would later recall what was a very fateful encounter as they marched up to the front. We heard a terrific roar down in the valley below us, like a motorised column getting near us. A patrol of two was sent out to investigate but never returned. Frank suggested that me and Johnny Lemon take my machine gun unit to the bend a couple of hundred yards up the road to provide cover. When my unit had passed on ahead of me, I decided to fall in with my crew next to Frank. Suddenly we were all surrounded at close quarters on both sides of the road by soldiers jumping out with guns trained on us and shouting, hands up! They had been taken prisoner by Italian fascists. Frank Ryan, so close to returning to Ireland, had lost his chance to escape. He would never see his home again. Captivity would be harrowing. 
Ryan in particular was a well-known anti-fascist, having risen to the rank of brigadier. The chances of him surviving captivity were slim, but his death was years away, and as we shall see in the next episode, remains one of the enduring mysteries of the Spanish Civil War. Meanwhile, the fascist advance was devastatingly successful. On April the 15th, 1938, Carlos Requete militias from northern Spain pushed through to the Mediterranean Sea along the south coast. For the fascists, this was a highly symbolic moment. They had split anti-fascist Spain in two. On the other side, for the anti-fascists, this was disastrous on every level. Barcelona, which only two years earlier had been the heart of the anti-fascist revolution, was now isolated and conditions in the city were deteriorating rapidly. The fascists stepped up their aerial bombardment of the Catalan capital and also seized control of the hydroelectric plants that powered the city. Food was also beginning to run short. It increasingly looked likely that in order to avoid total defeat, the anti-fascists now needed some form of international intervention from France or the United Kingdom. Up until this point, this had seemed highly unlikely. An international non-intervention committee had been set up by France and Britain at the start of the war. The supposed aim had been to try and limit the war by imposing arms embargoes on both sides and stop other countries sending troops. However, if anything, it had been hostile to the anti-fascists. It tended to focus on the intervention of the Soviet Union and less so on the fascist allies of General Franco in Germany and Italy. Indeed, the US ambassador to Spain called the committee the most cynical and dishonest group that history had known. However, Guernica, in April 1937, had started to change opinion. And then, just as the fascists were breaking through the Aragon front, a glimmer of hope had appeared in events that sounded alarm bells across Europe. That same month of March 1938, Hitler started his expansionist drive into Central Europe by annexing Austria. This brought war between Nazi Germany and France a step closer, a war that the anti-fascists in Spain hoped for. It would be a game-changer because if France was at war with Nazi Germany, they would naturally ally themselves to the anti-fascists in Spain. Indeed, immediately after the annexation of Austria, attitudes changed rapidly. The French reopened their border, allowing 18,000 tonnes of military equipment into anti-fascist Spain. These arms, while not a game-changer in terms of the wider war, arrived at a critical juncture and it gave the anti-fascists renewed fighting strength at a moment where they had suffered their worst defeat in the war. The key issue, though, was how could they best use them? They had numerous options. They could hold them in reserve and use them for the defence of Barcelona. It was clear an assault on the city was coming. However, Franco was also at that moment bearing down on the port of Valencia, if the anti-fascists lost control of that city, the French might think they were already beaten and not worth supporting. However, taking any action to save Valencia was risky in itself. If they were defeated in battle, this could lead to a total defeat. It was clear no matter what they did, it carried huge risk. Ultimately, they decided on a major offensive, which, if successful, would stop Franco advancing on Valencia and illustrate to the world they were not yet beaten. This would become the most important battle of the war the Battle of the Ebro. So it was in the summer of 1938, the anti-fascists amassed their forces in western Catalonia along the banks of the river Ebro. Pontoon bridges and rafts to cross the river were built. Meanwhile, the Irish volunteers left in Spain joined the other international brigade units as they began to move forward to the town of Falset, 10 miles from the river, where they began preparations for the coming battle. In the next episode, we will see them participate in this battle where 150,000 soldiers will decide the fate of Spain and indeed 
some would argue, the fate of Europe. To finish this episode, we need to return to the story of Hannah Ormsby, who we met earlier. As the preparations for the Ebro got underway, medical units also began to move forward to the front. They too would have to follow the army across the river and provide crucial medical aid. However, Hannah Ormsby was not with them. In the summer of 1938, she was in Barcelona, but in a cruel twist of fate, even though she had survived a year of war, she was tragically killed in an accident. She, along with another nurse named Carmen, were staying in a flat in the city used by the medics when not at the front. On the night of May the 4th, a fire had broken out and to her horror, when she tried to escape, she discovered the door was locked. A report in a Soviet archive revealed that the woman who managed the flat had taken the handle off the door as a crude way of locking it. The report detailed, Two girls flung themselves out the window because they could not get out of the door. Both were badly burnt. Hannah Ormsby died in Spain in that summer of 1938 as the anti-fascists prepared for their major showdown on the Ebro. Sadly, news of her death did not receive much coverage back in Ireland. Tragically, by 1938, scores of Irish people had died in Spain and another casualty of that war was not the news it might have been two years earlier. In the next podcast, we will return with the story of the Battle of the Ebro. In the meantime, don't forget to subscribe to the show. It'll take a few seconds and it means you won't miss the next episode. Until next time, Sloan. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.